0: Well, we are still in this period of weirdness with some recovering from the cold Rona flu and others still getting the cold Rona flu and um, seems to be sweeping the countryside. Um, And as we have said from the beginning of this soon-to-be endemic period of illness, it's safer to exercise caution if you're not feeling well. Just stay home until you're feeling better. But neither should we forsake the opportunity to assemble together to worship an Almighty God. So, if you're well enough to be out and around, if you can go to the grocery store and uh, you know go do fun things, you can probably be in church too. Um, So, it's nice to see those of you here today who have felt well enough to be here today, Uh, and those of you home feel better. I probably looked on the wrong camera. Feel better. Um, so I am feeling better this week. Uh, that's good. Uh, let, let's pray and we'll get started uh, in in our study in Revelation. Lord, we are grateful for the chance to be here this morning. For uh, for those who have been fighting through illness, and in some cases it seems like it drags on for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, we, we we pray for recovery for all those. For those who are still sick or have kids getting sick, and it seems like it can be a never-ending cycle. So we pray for, for health and wellness, but also for patience um, for all of us as we, as we struggle through this period of prolonged sickness and, and dark, foggy days. And um, Lord, we, we uh, can take joy in even what we read in the book of Revelation. There is an end to all this. Um, it may not be as, as far away as we think. Um, so open our hearts and our ears and our minds this morning to hear what you have for us, that we can see the, the joy, the, the, the warning, um, but the hope that is contained in this letter to the followers of Christ. Thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we made it through kind of that remarkably uh, deep, dense prologue section of the book um, that established that this book, this letter, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Christ. It was given by God, and it was ultimately intended for, directed to the servants of Jesus Christ. This is a message of revelation for us. Uh, With John serving as uh, the carrier, the, the medium through which this heretofore hidden message would be revealed. And if the first two verses weren't enough of a signal of its importance, verse 3 actually includes a blessing on all of this. Remember it says, everyone who reads this book and everyone who hears this message will be blessed. We are supposed to spend time reading and hearing this book. This is another key indicator, the fact that we're all blessed by hearing and reading. This is another indicator that the message contained herein might be somewhat important for us. And yet, due to the somewhat challenging nature of the contents of this particular letter, we've often relegated it to, okay, let's just get through this and check it off our annual read-through the Bible list. Right, let's let's just put our head down and read through it and, and maybe we'll figure it out later. Or or we tend to maybe overemphasize and focus on the most seemingly bizarre aspects of this book uh, and speculate endlessly as to what it all means, and we miss the main message. So we hope to rectify those things as we work our way through. We saw in verse four last week that John um, establishes that he intends to send this message to the seven churches in Asia. He he greets them all, and then in the next few verses uh, he goes into a fairly detailed, somewhat technical discussion about just who has initiated and sent this message. He he refers to him who is, who was, and who is to come. So we know this is a reference to God the Father. He mentions the seven spirits before the throne. A reference to God the Spirit. And then John refers to Jesus Christ, God the Son. So from the beginning of this letter and then throughout, we will see a regular pattern of Trinitarian references. And from the get here, it seems from the very beginning, John takes every opportunity to provide the authority or the the spiritual bona fides for the message he's been asked to deliver. He wants to be sure, he wants it to be clear, that this is not his own late-night pizza-fueled dream sequence. Here's how this message has been transmitted. This is directly from the Lord. And then in verse 9, he starts to lead into the beginning of the revelation. Chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So after establishing this spiritual kinship, I am your brother, I am your partner, John immediately jumps into tribulation. Suffering, persecution, I am your brother and partner in tribulation. Now, we... we, Covered this just a few weeks back, but by way of reminder, this letter was likely written during the Roman reign of Emperor Domitian. It was during this time that the, um, the imperial cult idea was, really began to take hold and began to be brutally enforced. The emperor was to be worshipped as god. So, if you lived in some, you know, backwatered, outside of Rome kind of town, and a ritual procession was coming through your town, honoring the emperor, and it happened to go by your front door, you were expected to come out and honor the emperor, and not just as a ruler, but as a god. You might even be expected to perform some kind of sacrifice in your front yard to show support of this god-emperor. And the local officials there, the ones who might have been in charge of this, politicians, we know how politicians are, right? They want to look good in front of the emperor, right? They want to be sure they're doing their job in support of Rome and, and all of his people. And so they would enforce these personal acts of worship with punishment for those who did not comply. Ephesus, we know, was one of the centers of this emperor cult phenomenon. Also, interestingly, it's the first church mentioned uh, in the next chapter here. And it wasn't just emperor worship of the time. Most of the trade groups, we'd heard, had their own uh, particular gods or goddesses even that they worshipped. And and being a member of a trade group, if you had a skill that required you to be part of a trade group, often meant having to worship that particular deity. Under threat of losing your ability to practice your trade. So it was an economically enhanced call to worship. You had to worship these false gods, or else you couldn't practice your trade. Your life and your livelihood depended on it. Plus, at this time, the Christian sect was beginning to be seen as something other than just an offshoot of Judaism. Now, Judaism had kind of been granted this this governmental protection. It had been grudgingly accepted by Roman rule. But this new Christian group was seen as something different, and they weren't afforded the same kind of protections that Jews had been, all of which is to say that the followers of Christ were facing significant persecution from several fronts, the least of which, the least of which may have been being disallowed to practice their trade and provide for their families. There were real stories of real persecution and suffering, and they were becoming more commonplace throughout the Roman Empire. So John says, I sympathize with you. Not only that, he says, I I know how many of you are suffering. I'm being persecuted as well. They put me out on this little island called Patmos out here in the the middle of the ocean. Greek island at the time. It, It likely had a small military outpost. But there's no record of it serving as any kind of a prison or anything like that. But they stick John out here on this island. Uh, Early Roman writer Juvenal once referred to a number of these small Greek islands as, quote, rocks crowded with our noble exiles. So it seems as though Patmos, though not a prison necessarily, and other islands like it, were used as a form of punishment. Those unloyal to the emperor, uh, scholars who taught maybe competing ideologies... Uh, contradictory ideas, political rivals, all might find themselves exiled onto these little rocky outcroppings in the Aegean that seems to be the case here John says his exile was on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus and if he was teaching about Jesus or likely was actually speaking out against the imperial cult that certainly could have been enough for him to be banished out on some rocky outcropping. And so John can, in good conscience, claim to be a partner in tribulation with the other Christians of the day. And this also, of course, helps lay the groundwork for the larger message that is to come, which, which John hints at by saying that he's also a partner in the patient endurance in Jesus. That becomes a major theme in this book, the idea of patient endurance. Verse 10: I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So, on a Sunday morning, the Lord's day, the first day of their week, you know, the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, John was in the Spirit. Now, there's a lot of discussion here as to what this means. What seems most likely, I think what seems most biblically consistent, is that John is in some kind of a prayerful, meditative kind of state. Perhaps he's studying the word. Uh, perhaps he's, he's praying for these very churches that he's thinking of as this letter continues. The churches are undergoing persecution. But he's engaged in some kind of spiritually-minded pursuit. This is not a reference to any kind of self-willed, trance-like state that we often think of today. It's not, it's not an inward-seeking, mind-clearing meditation. It's not that. We know it's not that because John seems to be fully conscious of what's happening around him. He's not drifting off in some other ethereal plane. He's in the spirit and he hears a voice from behind him. Now, this is the first time, the first of four different times in Revelation that John refers to being in the Spirit. And each time it leads to some kind of extraordinary event or vision. The next time it shows up is in chapter 4. John is in the Spirit, and he looks, and he sees a door standing open in heaven, and a voice beckons him, come up here. Pretty unusual. Not an everyday occurrence. In chapter 17, an angel carried John away in the spirit out to the wilderness where John sees this vision of, of the great prostitute sitting on a scarlet beast. That was some pizza. This is the, these are significant events. Chapter 21, an angel carried John away in the spirit to a great high mountain and he saw Jerusalem descending. Clearly, these are extraordinary occurrences this is not a self-willed self-guidance meditative kind of experience these are external to john these are brought on by god so in the spirit has a strong prophetic kind of connection supernatural in the literal sense this is not from john and so its use should not be cheapened or made common in fact, I thought it was interesting, four times in Revelation and once in the Old Testament do we find the phrase, in the Spirit. In Ezekiel thirty-seven one, it says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. Do you remember this story? Ezekiel being, being shown this vision of the valley of dry bones. And the Lord tells him to prophesy over the bones. In fact, the Lord says it in a, thus says the Lord kind of way. Thus says the Lord, prophesy over these bones. And Ezekiel saw the bones start to come to life. They put on flesh and they get up and they start moving around. And this is an extraordinarily singular kind of event. Not only that, but the text says, the hand of the Lord was on me. He brought me out in the spirit. This is an extraordinary, not everyday, not casual, not a usual kind of event, as is the case for John. And I say all of this because... We tend to make this something more or different than it is. We can, we can easily cheapen it. We're called to walk in the Spirit, but that's not the same kind of thing as is being described here. We're called to follow the leading of the Spirit, to, to listen to the prompting of the Spirit. Most of us, the vast majority of us, will never have this kind of experience that's described to John and Ezekiel. So, we should not lessen or cheapen the significance of this phrase in the spirit by making it seem like it's an everyday occurrence for the really, really spiritual. And yet, we have many false teachers in our day who seem to spend a good deal of their time in the spirit. It's amazing they can make meals. There's so much time in the Spirit, and they spend all this time in the Spirit, and then they come out telling us these fanciful yarns about this discussion they had with Jesus, who was milking a cow at the time, or, or they, they had this in the Spirit experience, and they, they had this insight from the Word of, from the Word of God, from the Holy Spirit Himself, who was dressed like a plumber. And it, it's all meant to aggrandize themselves, to try to convince us how spiritual they are. So beware anyone who claims that the extraordinary in Scripture is ordinary for them. We've got to test them spirits, baby. Let's pay attention. What John and Ezekiel both describe is an extraordinary, out-of-the-ordinary kind of event which just adds weight and gravitas to what's about to happen. We ought to be paying attention because this is unusual. Unusual. John hears behind him a voice like a trumpet. It's loud, it's clear, it's strong, it got his attention. Now remember, as a a chronicler of Jesus' life, John's seen a lot of things. A variety of miracles, demons cast out, multitudes fed. He's heard Jesus teach with the wisdom of the ages. And even as John writes this, he's being punished for his loyalty to Jesus. And so I still got to think that hearing a voice from behind you that sounded like a trumpet out on this rock, out of the blue, it's got to be a little disconcerting. It got his attention on a quiet Sunday morning. And then the voice says, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So John now knows that he's about to see or be shown something. Because he's supposed to write it down. Write what you see in a book. And whatever it is, it's got to be kind of important because he's supposed to write it down and share it with these churches. Now we mentioned before, also, that the order of the churches listed here is, is probably the order in which these letters might have been delivered. It was kind of a, a, a common circuit or, or a trade route. So these are not seven random churches listed in random order. There's a method to the madness here. It has purpose and intent, starting with the fact that there are seven When the voice says Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and all the others, the voice means this letter needs to go to all those churches. It needs to go to those seven churches, but not just those churches. We're also meant to understand that that, that seven is a symbol of fullness or completeness. So the seven mentioned specifically are representative of all the churches comprised of followers of Christ. So this message, these visions, what John is about to write down, is to be shared with all churches everywhere. This is a message for the ages. Now so far, <clears throat> apart from you know the unsettling voice like a trumpet bit, maybe even hearing directly from, we're assuming, the Lord at this point, there's nothing too earth-shattering here. Uh, I want you to write some stuff down. Make sure it gets to the churches. But then the seeing begins. Starting in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Well, here's our first vision in the book. Although, to be fair, John has no idea what's coming. So to John, this is not the first vision. This is just a vision. And what a vision. He turns around and he sees this one like the Son of Man. What an interesting choice of phrase here. Throughout the gospel, the phrase Son of Man is used over 80 times. And every time, it's a reference to Jesus. In fact, it's a phrase Jesus often used of himself. In Matthew 8.20, Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In John 12, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Luke 22, But from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So Jesus, in his own words, calls himself Son of Man. One of my favorite examples, I think, of that phrase is found in Acts 7. Uh, You probably know it as the stoning of Stephen. It says, When they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, and he said... Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So this, this picture of Stephen literally being ushered to his physical death, but his spiritual eternity for preaching Jesus, and overseeing all of this is the presence of the risen Christ. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, there's all kinds of stories about what people see in their, you know, supposed moments of death. I tend to discount most of those, being the skeptic that I am. But man, I hope I see this. (laughs) It seems pretty clear, I think, that we're supposed to make this connection between the Son of Man and the Vision and Jesus, the risen Christ. That's the obvious connection. But there's also a really interesting connection between this description of Jesus and this vision and the Old Testament. Specifically, we've referred to this already, visions given in Ezekiel and Daniel. Uh, So let's look at some of the similarities and what we see. On the left is what we have here in Revelation 1. We we have a reference to the Son of Man. In Ezekiel, his vision refers to that like like that of a man. In Daniel, a man. Daniel 7, Son of Man. Robe. Linen robe is mentioned in Daniel. A gold sash in Daniel. White hair is mentioned in Daniel. Eyes like fire in Ezekiel. In Daniel, twice. Feet like bronze. Voice like waters. Face like the sun. Isn't that interesting? I, I just, I don't think there's a universe in which these matching descriptions are coincidental. Those are fairly specific. And yet they're carried over from the Old Testament to the New Testament. This is yet another testimony to the long-standing nature of God's plan. It has been in place from the beginning. And God has continued to reveal or share parts of his plan throughout the ages. And this is fascinating stuff. We'll see a lot more like this as we go through. So John starts by describing Jesus as standing in the middle of the seven lampstands. And at this point in the letter... We do not know for sure what these lampstands are or what they represent. Are they just for lighting, so John can see the image of the Son of Man? Maybe they're for mood lighting, to help set the ambiance for everything else that is about to transpire. We don't know. We're told in a few more verses, but we don't know yet. And my guess is, given the rest of the description that John has laid out for us, at this particular moment, he's less concerned about what the lampstands mean. Because he describes this person, this one like the Son of Man, and I'm sure John understood who this was, but he provides detail for us anyway. John says he's wearing a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. And the long robe perhaps calls to mind the robe that might have been worn by the priest as he went in to do his temple duties. He had a sash, or, or uh, some people think maybe it's a waistband that's gold in color. And gold signifies authority and and, and beauty and wealth. The hair of his head was white, like wool, white like snow. I mean, his hair was really, really quite white. Like the supremely white hair of one aged with wisdom. His eyes like a flame of fire. Fire, we know, is often associated with theophanies or appearances of God. And think of the burning bush, uh, Mount Sinai... So his eyes are, are are fire, they're piercing, they're penetrating, purifying. Able to tell truth from falsehood. This is the Jesus who judges by the heart, not by outward appearance, because he can see into our very soul. The all-seeing God. His feet like burnished bronze, as though we're fine in a furnace. So we have reference to this purifying effect of the furnace, and how that carries over into the description of his feet. And in that day also, bronze was often used to make weapons of war. So there's perhaps even an association here between purity and judgment, or war. Maybe even something like divine judgment. Divine justice. His voice was like the roar of many waters. If you've been next to a waterfall, a big raging waterfall, you know what that means. It's It's authoritative. It's loud. It's clear. It's hard to miss. And it says, In his hand he held seven stars, which presumably gave off even more light. That's how he knew they were stars, maybe. Um, That's about to be explained for us. But from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, meaning perhaps the the, the power of Jesus' words that can bring either punishment or reward. And his face shone like the sun, full-on midday strength. We have to use our imaginations here just a little bit to imagine the sun, but he's got this full, bright radiance of the sun. Now, what's striking here, I think, is that we can all agree that the description John provides here is not this. The picture John describes is more like this. Picture described as one of overwhelming glory. This is the Jesus who has come to set things right. The Jesus who's, who's come to bring about the long promised total redemption of all of creation. And he is the one fully capable of pulling it off. And this overwhelming glory is not lost on John. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now John's reaction uh, is is completely understandable, and would, in point of fact, I think, seem more than a little suspect if he had not pseudo-fainted. That's a staggering, shocking image. John falls at his feet as though dead. This seems entirely believable. Altogether human. Everything about this experience John has is overwhelming. Every sense is on high alert. They're literally overwhelmed. And down he goes. Being in the presence of the risen Messiah, looking the way he did, it was just too much. And John appropriately fell at his feet as though dead. But notice it says Jesus laid his hand... On John. I mean, I think Jesus had to understand the, the power of this vision. He he understood the effect of this appearance. He understood John's reaction. And so Jesus laid his hand on John to calm him, to assure him. And it turns out this overwhelming, glorious personage is still the Good Shepherd. He's still the loving Jesus. And Jesus continues to teach, to to reveal to John, with, with his hand on his shoulder, Jesus said, Fear not. And I gotta feel like the, 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 the fear and the anxiety just began to dissipate. And, and and John was now being prepared to hear, to experience, what is about to come next. John's ready to hear more, and Jesus says, I am the first and the last. Now, remember, we've already read last week that he, Jesus said he's the Alpha and Omega. Same idea here. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Now, I think at this point, this is not news to John. He knew firsthand that Jesus had died. He knew that the tomb had been found empty. And John had rightly concluded that Jesus must now be alive. And if he came back from, from the dead, he's probably alive forevermore. He, he's, he's defeated death. So this is just kind of confirming, I think, what John likely knew. But then Jesus says, I have the keys of death and Hades. This may be a little different spin on it than John had previously realized. Jesus adds a little more detail for him. Jesus didn't just have keys or the power over his own death. Jesus declares he has power over all death. Power he intends to exercise for the benefit of those who choose to follow the risen Christ. I think this had to be enormously comforting for John to hear right about now. He had fallen as though dead just moments ago, and here Jesus says, That's okay, I got power over death. Had you died, you'd still be okay. I mean, John's currently being punished on this island for teaching the Word of God for following the testimony of Christ, Christians are being persecuted, they're suffering everywhere, and Jesus says, don't fear death. You don't have to be afraid of it. I got you. The power over death is mine. And Jesus meant this to be a comfort for John. Because right after these words of eternal comfort, Jesus says, you're going to want to write the rest of this down. In fact, here's the way he says it. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Now, many scholars rightly suggest, I think, that this verse is critical to understanding the information that is contained in this book. This verse is is significant. It, It suggests, it even demands, I think, a threefold division of the book and how we approach it. It, it guides us, or, or it should guide our perspective and our understanding of the contents. First, he says, write down the things that you have seen. So the language suggests that these are things in the past, things that have happened, the, the recent past, more than likely, as in, write down the series of visions you're about to have. I want you to write down these things that you've just seen. Because by the time John sees them and then writes them down, they're in the past. So the instruction here is to write down what you're about to see. Next, John is instructed to write down the things that are, which speaks to the present. Here's what's happening now. And we'll see, immediately following this command, John writes to seven of the churches that currently, at that time, existed in Asia. And he writes to them about their current, present condition. He writes to them about their strengths and weaknesses at that time, as they are. Now, as it turns out, John's diagnosis, the information he has, the, 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 what he lays out about their problems and shortcomings, even his descriptions of the things that are, that are going well, happen to be applicable to every church across many ages. So, even though John's writing was current and spot on at that present moment, the message happens to be universal from that time on. But it still does depict things that were true at that time. So John is writing about the things that are. And then John writes about, is supposed to write about those things that are to take place after this. To write about the things he's seen, that are yet to take place and this section comprises most of the book of Revelation chapters 4 through 22 are for the most part are the things that will take place after this vision concludes so here we are 2,000 years removed from these things that will take place and presumably some of those have taken place or are in the process of currently taking place or maybe are continuing to take place over again. Because it turns out that just as human behavior is consistent enough for this message for the seven churches to still apply to us today, so the events of human history tend to repeat in some kind of form or fashion because we're not that smart. We don't learn all the lessons the first time around. Humans are still humans. The devil is still trying to undo what God has done. And the devil continues to get smacked down when he pushes too far. And so there are going to be events that have been historically fulfilled, it seems, but may come back around again in some other, some other form or fashion. Earthquakes, wars, genocides, those are all signs of things to watch for. We've had those from the time of Jesus to now. I mean, seemingly world-ending stuff, and yet we're still here, and history still repeats. But there will come a day when the Lord says, Enough. Enough. So as we've said, this is not just a letter or a book about end times. It's a letter about all time. It refers to past, present, and future. It includes things that have not yet happened, while also drawing on and, and expanding Old Testament wisdom and prophecies that help explain our current and future events. It's remarkable how this is laid out. It proves again the continuity of God's plan of history. I mean, we've already seen it with the description of the Son of Man. It's in the New Testament, and it's in the Old Testament. Now, to be sure, the things that will take place have led to much intrigue and fear and speculation, but understanding this verse 19 framework will help us make sense of what we see as we go along. But we'll also see that there's some crossover, a little bit, from categories. Well, now we get to the part about the lampstands and the stars. We didn't know what they meant, nor did John, apparently, but Jesus makes it clear here after describing them as a mystery. There's a lot of mysteries in the New Testament. There's a lot of things that God just continues to slowly reveal over time. So he, he represents this as a mystery. The seven stars represent the angels that apparently have some attachment to each of the seven churches about to be listed here. Now, we don't want to read too much into one reference in one verse and build up this whole arcane theology about the existence and role and function of angels. Angels. It seems likely that what's being described here is that each church has a representative angel that's appointed or or assigned to provide oversight or or direction or or help as needed, perhaps to run interference from demonic attack that might be coming. Again, let's not read too much into this. We can get all into all kinds of weird Frank Peretti, you know, strange things happening—demons for every carburetor and. We're not told enough about this to make any kind of blanket the- theological statement. The picture shows that while there are angels involved in some capacity with these churches, the angels themselves rest in the right hand of the risen Christ. So let's not focus so much on the angels. Let's focus more on the one who's providing ultimate oversight and security and protection and assigns the angels and bids them to guard and protect or whatever it is they do. If Jesus is the one controlling the angels, he misses nothing. He is seeing everything. Again, I think that's comforting for John to hear. In fact, Jesus says the lampstands, the seven lampstands, are the seven churches. So back to John's first image, he hears the voice and he turns around and and he sees one, like the Son of Man, standing in the midst of the lampstands. I think that imagery is pretty clear. Jesus is in the midst of the churches. He is the center of the of the churches whatever trial they may be having whatever tribulation they may be experiencing whatever hard times or difficulty they're facing Jesus is in the midst of it even in John's he had to have some low lonely moments of seclusion out there in this this rock Jesus is in the midst and then the picture of Jesus in the middle of the churches is amplified by the seven stars in the right hand, those work together. As bad as we think we have it, and historically, Christians have suffered in horrible, shockingly bad circumstances. I mean, not here yet. Perhaps soon. But as bad as the church has suffered, we can and we should remember that Christ is in the middle of it with us. Praise the Lord. Not only did he suffer worse than any of us will suffer, he paid the penalty for all of our sin, But he does not cause us to suffer alone. He does not cause us to suffer without purpose. In fact, you think of the three men cast into the fiery furnace. They weren't alone. Think back to those seconds before Stephen's stoning. Facing imminent death, he gazed into heaven and saw the Son of Man standing there at the right hand of God. Stephen walked into death accompanied by Jesus. So I think Jesus knows that, that, that what's about to be revealed to John is going to be shocking, to say the least. A little bit disturbing. But this image suggests Jesus standing among the lampstands, seven stars in his hand. This image suggests that Jesus is saying, I've got it all under control. However it may look, however you may feel about it, Things are going exactly as we want them to go. Just trust me, the plan is in place. It's working. The churches, my my, my dear saints, they they may well suffer for my cause. My enemies will become your enemies. They will attack, but you're not alone. The devil, the dragon, the beast... It's going to wage war against me, and it's going to wage war against the church. And the devil will not go down without a fight, but it is a fight he will lose. I got you right here. So fear not. I am the first and the last. I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. I got you. Fear not. Let's pray. Lord, I have the sense that for the next, uh, however long this series takes us to get through, we're going to continue to say what a remarkable book this is. What remarkable insight you have given to us. Lord, I pray that, that as we continue to to, uh, to listen to the sermons, to, to be blessed by hearing it. We're also blessed because we're reading it and we're studying on our own and trying to see more of what you have laid out for us. And it is remarkable in every sense. Lord, it shows us the, the character of God, it shows us the uh, omnipotence, the omnipresence of an almighty God. And as convoluted and complicated and, and as dark as the world seems, You got it. You are in the midst of the church. The angels that serve the church are in your right hand, and we are taken care of. Things aren't going to go the way we might want, that's for sure. But Lord, I pray that all of this causes us to increase in our faith, to grow in our trust for you, to know that these present sufferings will mean nothing when compared with the weight of glory. So we pray for patient endurance in Jesus. We pray that as we start to to really learn here in the West maybe what suffering and tribulation looks like, Lord, that we find we have more in common with with Christians around the world. And we are mindful of the fact that this all has to go, we all have to go through this, this time, through this suffering. But it is not without purpose, and we're not doing it alone. Thank you for your love for us, your patience with us,